Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I'm Tyler Stanley. We have an awesome show for you today. I got the chance to interview Drs. Lynn Kohick and Amy Brown Hughes on their book, Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the 2nd through 5th Centuries. And before we get started, I want to say a big thanks to their publisher, Baker Academic. They were incredibly generous in sending us a copy of the book and also in helping us get this interview set up. They were very helpful, and we hope to do more work with them in the future. And of course, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure you give us a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It helps us get the word out and educate people on Christianity in the ancient world. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where you can get updates and uh, interact with us on the show and give us suggestions on future shows. We are hosted by Patristica Press. That is a publishing house created by myself and Gerhard Steuben and Jake Robbie. At patristicapress.com you can find some books that we have written as well as our sister podcast, The Reformation Podcast, hosted by Jake Robbie and Gerhard Steuben, where they discuss all things Reformation. And now here is my conversation with Drs. Lynn Kohick and Amy Brown Hughes. To start with, um, could each of you just tell us who you are, where you are, what you do? All right. Um, My name is Amy Hughes, and I am an assistant professor of theology at Gordon College that's uh, on the North Shore of Boston. So I teach undergrads theology. (laughs) Um, I do like the required course that students have to take, as well as several others, some that are in my field of early Christianity and others that are more general. Um, my other loves are theological anthropology, and um, I also just, as a historical theologian, I'm in, I enjoy lots of different periods of history, so I do surveys of that. Um, so that's what I do. Great. And I'm uh, Lynn Kohick. I'm a professor of New Testament, and I'm also provost dean of Denver Seminary. I just started in this new post. Uh, this past summer, July of 2018. So really enjoying being out in Amy's old stomping ground. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we had the first snowfall last week. So I'm looking out on the mountains and they look lovely and white and, and all of that. Uh, so yeah, so that, uh, so now I think the technical term is as a provost dean i heard cats also known as faculty (laughs) (laughs) really know what else i do (laughs) but i'm happy to talk with you about uh, amy and i's book that uh that we just had so much fun writing great so speaking of the book would you mind just telling us how that all came about sure lynn you want to go answer that well uh yeah i Uh, Amy and I were at Wheaton together for a number of years where Amy did her dissertation with my colleague, George Galancis. And so we got to know each other and realized we had this love for women in the in the early church and then just had this kind of crazy idea. Hey, why don't we uh, (laughs) propose uh, a book uh, to uh, Baker? And and they they were excited to do it. And so that started us on a process just a couple of years of of looking in to the various um, aspects of women's lives, Christian women's lives, um, in the early centuries of the church. Had you each done much work on uh, women in that culture prior to this, or was this kind of a new project for you? Well, it was definitely not new for Lynn, because she had a book that had come out that was All awesome right. before this. Yeah, so... <laughs> Thank women you. in what is it? Women okay. in the world of earliest Christians, or yep. is that the right yep. title? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And I love doing that, that book. That, that was a book that looked at basically the Hellenistic period and Gentile women and Jewish women and what their lives were like. And I always felt like I, I, I needed to do part two, which was the uh, Christian women and their experiences as the early church developed. Um, but my area of expertise is much more the New Testament and the very early church. Um, and so it was terrific to work with Amy because she, uh, not only is she way smarter than me overall, but also ah. later. <laughs> so, yeah, and so we just had a great time. And my work is in the third, fourth, third and fourth centuries. So my my dissertation work is primarily in the Greek East. So I worked with uh, Origen, Methodius, and Gregory, Missa. And my master's thesis, I had I had already been interested in thinking about. Um, uh, what women, how women were represented in texts, because there are very few examples of women writing for themselves in early Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so I, my first foray into that was actually during my master's thesis, when I got interested in reading about Macarena, specifically Macarena and a few others. Um, it's Gregory of Nyssa's sister. And then wondering, okay, what is the difference between this text about women and virginity, because my specific field is, um, I, I look very specifically at women and virginity. Um, and then comparing that with like Hildegard of Bingen, who writes for herself on the topic, and just sort of going back and forth and thinking about the differences there. So I, I was swimming in later waters than Lynn. So it was nice to come together. And we both challenged ourselves. She moved a little bit farther into uh, later centuries. And I also did the same thing by working more in the early fifth century with the Christian empresses, which was a new, a new piece for me. Yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned something that is a topic in the book, I think in the later section of it, you mentioned that women are often writing for themselves, or we don't have the, the writings that they're writing for themselves. It's often men writing on their behalf or quoting them. Can you talk a little bit more about that and about maybe the challenges of understanding the lives of women in the ancient world because of that? Well, I'll start by talking about the challenges there, because um, especially the texts I worked with primarily are men writing about women. Then I'll pass it to Lynn, who worked a lot with Perpetua and Garia, who do write for themselves. So uh, we have these beautiful texts uh, from Augustine writing about his mother, Monica, um, uh, with Ma uh, Methodius writing the symposium of, that aren't really about real women, like actual women that lived, but sort of creates fictional women. And then Gregory of Nyssa writing his, about his sister. And then we have Jerome writing these letters back and forth to uh, Paula and Marcella and then Rufinus. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of interaction with women in early Christianity and, and, and these early Christian writers. And what we have it makes us sort of question, okay, well, does the representation that Augustine speaks of with his mother or Gregory does of his sister, how close are these to who these women actually were? And there's been a lot of really good work written on this, like theoretically with Elizabeth Clark and, um, and, um, Jillian Clark and so many others who have really worked a lot on the theoretical end of this and thinking about, okay, um, how far are we away from these, from the real women in the text? And we we built our study a lot on on the shoulders of those people who have done that work, and to think through. Okay, so what we have is Augustine's Monica. We have Gregory's Macarena, and you just have mm -hmm. to conclude that. Like you can't say somewhere in this text, somewhere if you look under enough textural rocks, you'll find the real Macarena. Like you sort of have to shift into recognizing that the legacy that we have functions, that it works, that this has been, that people have looked upon Monica and Macarena's examples, for, uh, for example, and that their stories have been powerful in and of themselves. Um, yeah. And I, yes, and I, I think one of the interesting questions we both talked about is, um, if you have, let's say, an anonymous text, 
Or if you, well, yeah, if you have an anonymous text, how would you know whether a woman wrote it or not? Mm-hmm. Would would there be some sort of uh, feminine clue, you know, pink ink uh, on, <laughs> on paper, you know, that would signal that it's uh, from a woman? And at part of the reason that question is so important is because that it highlights, I think, the assumptions then that we might have on how women were feeling and thinking, um, and were they uh, very different from their male counterparts? Uh, Did Augustine's mom really think very differently? Did she think uh, femininely uh, over against Augustine's masculinity, um, or were they both kind trying to sort through uh, the the nature of sin and the the uh, nature of salvation, or whatever the the questions might be? So I think that that um, sometimes we're we have expectations for what a woman would sound like, hmm. but how would we know? what she would sound like. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things um, that that we also noted and tried to take uh, special account of is their social location. Some of these women are quite wealthy and they would sound more like wealthy men than they would sound like poor women. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at uh, the educational opportunities that women had. And while they may be fewer opportunities for women than men, if you did have an educated woman, then she probably knew the same sorts of things that her educated brother and father and, uh, you know, um, uh, men, the men in the congregation. Uh, she might know uh, several languages, um, it, just those kinds of things. So that was kind of exciting to see, yeah. uh, not just how women were different, but also how they were the same. And that sameness, I think, especially comes out when we look at the martyrs, um, because the the martyrs, um, their, their acts were seen as efficacious, irrespective of whether they were a man or a woman, where it did come out, uh, the, sort of the their testimony um, was gendered in a way, was uh, the comments that um, would be made that women uh, isn't it amazing how strong they were after all their women? <laughs> so <laughs> even stronger because uh, they were considered weak uh, emotionally as well as you know physically and intellectually. But the the expectations that the martyr, whether a man or a woman, uh, that martyr would give their life and thus be worthy of uh, attention by both men and women in the church, that was um, really, uh, that, that was a strong conviction across uh, across those few um, decades that uh, martyrdom was was prevalent in the in the church. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brings up a topic that seems to be a difficult one to traverse, which is the the language and terminology of masculinity and femininity, where masculine language, like you said, is applied to women to kind of say, "Oh, look, they're not." quite as much womanly as we might expect. They're more like men who are courageous courageous and strong and such. So we have the image of Perpetua who has this vision of herself as a man in the gladiator pit. So can you can you talk about that, about the terminology? How, how can we maybe appreciate what's going on there, but also critique it? I'll say a little bit, and I know Amy can jump in uh, as well uh, with this plays out across the the centuries. Um, I think with um, Perpetua, a couple of things. This is a vision that she has. And so right away, we're in this realm where metaphor and image and illusion, including biblical illusion, has to to be part of our understanding. Um, So, for example, the the, uh, person, the opponent that um, Perpetua fights is an Egyptian. Oh, that's so symbolic in the biblical text, right? Mm. So we know there's a lot of symbolism happening here. Uh, secondly, um, while there were women who were gladiators, um, they uh, either fought other women or they fought male dwarfs. Well, neither of those are going to really uh, symbolically represent the kind of, uh, of contest uh, between ultimate good and 
the enemies of God that uh, that Perpetua's vision is supposed to to carry through. And then finally, I would say just as she has this vision, part of what happens is that like any other glad- male gladiator, her body is rubbed with oil before she goes in uh, into the arena. And that that would be so odd and striking if she remained in her female body and had these uh you know, male attendants rub uh, oil on her. I mean, I just, I can't imagine uh, anyone, that, that would be so inconsistent in terms of, of the image that, that uh, this vision creates. So I think there's just, a, <clears throat> pardon me, a couple of levels here uh, that make it important that she is a man as she, as she faces this. Um, I don't think it means this contest. I don't think it means that she's frustrated in, in, with her female body. It's mm. just that she's, she's in a contest between ultimate good and the enemy of God. Yeah. And it's interesting because you see these different writers try, really f- struggling to find language in a lot of ways because uh, Latin especially has the structure of like, I mean, courage equals man like, <laughs> and in like Greek, yeah, yeah in, but in both languages you have these really strong associations of uh, when you speak of courage when you speak of strength then you're saying someone is manly mm-hmm. um, womanly is not a compliment in that category so you see these writers getting sort of uh, struggling against this. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, at the beginning of, of the life of Macarena, he says something, I'm going to butcher the paraphrase here, but something along the lines of like, um, I can't call her a woman because she's so amazing. <laughs> yeah, doesn't um, he say something like she transcends the the, yeah. the label of woman? Yeah, yeah she, she's beyond this. She's, yeah. she's beyond this. And, and that's one example of many of these early Christian writers having an understanding that these women were praiseworthy and, and doing important things and amazing things. And, uh, but you can see their context, not giving them the language that like them struggling against the boundaries of their language and their own culture. And you see this even on larger in larger frames of, of trying to figure out where like the, like the, the consecrated virgins fit with any sort of mm-hmm. hierarchy in the church. Like they're trying to figure out, okay, well, like it's, it was the same thing with confessors and, and, and bishops. There, there are a lot of this kind of negotiations within these frames where the, a lot of the Christian ideals that were held seemed to, to conflict or at, the, uh, at one end or at the very least um, push, bend, uh, disrupt the contextual uh, understandings that a lot of people had about everything from from gender to class, you know, in baptism, you're supposed to get rid of, you know, all of your clothes, all those class distinctions. And the idea of a slave and, and, you know, somebody from the imperial house walking in into Mm -hmm. a church and stripping down and, and going through and having their new family kind of bestowed on them would have been, was an absolutely radical and ridiculous idea. Mm -hmm. So Christian writers were, trying to figure out how to explain things that their own language didn't really give them the words for, um, which I think is really, uh, which is really interesting to me. Um, and you see example after example, after example of women specifically, um, bursting out of these particular frames of expectation. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, then, uh, how how do women in that in that world uh, conform to or push against social expectations in ways that we might uh, that might surprise us given kind of how we might um, how I don't know I I kind of had this view I was taught this view of women in the ancient world of that dichotomy of internal and external piety that women were kind of expected to have. They were the, the shame part of the honor culture. They protected the shame of the family. The men protected the honor out in the public. Um, so can you problematize that uh, dichotomy and, and talk about the ways in which women in that world 
pushed against and conformed to those norms in order to uh, assert themselves and, and influence their situations. Dr. Kohek, if you want to jump in on that. Sure. I think the uh, one of the uh, um, ways of understanding women's stories um, that's that's being um, reevaluated now is this notion that the only authentic action that we can uh, discern from a woman is if it's countercultural. Well, that raises questions when we look at Christian women who embrace modesty, because the typical way in the past that that's been viewed is that women were um, uh, just going along with their patriarchal culture or were being outright oppressed, but that it wasn't an authentic action on their part to embrace modesty. Um, and I think now that uh, there's uh, scholars are are wanting to give women agency, even in that situation where they where they embrace aspects of their culture. Uh, in, in the case of Christian women, they embrace perhaps certain aspects of their culture, not because their culture says it, though, but because of their own understanding of their body and the promise of the resurrection body and that life with uh, Jesus and the imitation of Christ, all of which feed into, and this is my handoff to Amy, the the, um, the notions of virginity and uh, celibacy or women who were married once and then did not remarry, uh, but remained celibate, that they were not hating their own body by any means and not just going along with the crowd, their social uh, context, but actually doing theology on their body. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, a couple of good examples of this, we see um, women participating in some, I think one of the uh, mischaracterizations is the idea that women were, so you mentioned interior, exterior, mm -hmm. but it's sort of the public private structure. Um, and yeah, there were certain things that women didn't do in the public sphere, really. But then there was a whole lot of other things that they did do <laughs> in the public sphere, even in Roman society, not just Christians, but in mm -hmm. general. I think there's part of the issue here is there's just kind of a misrepresentation also there has been of of just Greco-Roman women and how yeah. they sort of operated in the world and of themselves. We sort of map back like uh, our own mischaracterizations here. Um and, and these women, especially the women involved in the Origenist controversy in the early 5th century uh, with Rufinus and, and Jerome going back and forth, that would be Paula, Marcella, uh, and the two, uh, Melania the Younger and Melania the Elder. Uh, these women were, uh, we know enough about them that they, he was very, they were very specific on how many thousands upon thousands of lines of origin they knew and how, how, how many languages they understood and they were fundamental to these large theological conversations. And that was happening alongside these choices that they made. Like Melania the Younger very famously like looked at her husband Pinius and said, well, we're going to be celibate for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Married couple. How do you feel about that? Actually, she didn't even give him the option. It was like, <laughs> he kind of negotiated it out. Like, you know, they had two kids, both of them died. And then she had sort of fulfilled that end of the bargain, which is what he wanted. And then he said, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do this now. And they lived the rest of their lives, you know, um, as, um, as celibate. And, uh, and so that kind of choice, Melania the Elder, you know, leaving, you know, <laughs> leaving her family behind, um, Paula doing the same thing. We have this very emotional scene in her life of her sort of taking the boat away and her family standing on the pier, like mm -hmm. <laughs> what, uh, all these sorts of choices that they make that are, um, that, that are life kind of life and body choices and, but also are theological choices that you mm. can't separate them out. And the one other example I would use of a particular mischaracterization um, is uh, our last chapter when we talk about the Christian empresses. Mm -hmm. We focus on Pulcheria and Eudokia. And I, and I mentioned the beginning of that chapter, how we just, in our context, you know, here in the U.S., we don't really understand empress. Right. <laughs> like even the concept of empress, um, you, you have, we'd have to be better versed in, in Chinese history to have even sort of any sort of 
concept of that. You know, we get queen. She's either, you know, the nice lady with pearls and corgis or she's <laughs> the the mean one that has all this power a la Disney movies. And so and then we think Empress is like just a queen on steroids. Like we, we don't really know. And there's been a lot of debate in, Byzant- in early Byzantine studies about what kind of power did an empress actually have. And for a long time, she was seen as pretty much just like a figurehead, like the emperor was the one that had all the power. But in more recent studies, it's we've been really looking at her as agent of empire. Like mm. she couldn't, she couldn't, um, you know, tell the military to go here or there. Although you know, it's possible that maybe they did anyway. Um, but we have these incredible, this incredible uh, amount of material that helps us shape in all of these assumptions that we have of these women sort of just being part of intrigues or being sort of manipulated in power or constantly kind of being thrown to the side. When in reality, like Polcaria is a really good example. She was running that empire. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I think some of those, and, and the fact that later historians look back at some of these women and and characterize them as dangerous and as, uh, and in our conclusion, uh, we, we talk about another one of those a little bit later, that th- some of these characterizations of not just not knowing what to do with women with lots of power. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. move now into the into the the church proper where do we see women in uh how would their leadership function within the assembly of christians what maybe tasks did they perform uh what offices would they have held uh you you speak some about the 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 office of the widow kind of developing so can you talk a little bit about that yeah, I think what we um, uh, wanted to do was uh, both talk about offices, like the political uh, arena where the empresses functioned, um, but also to talk about influence, which could come not uh, just from a title or an office held, but also perhaps by uh, education level, uh, the finances, um the the one who has gold often uh, sets the rules kind of thing um and those when there were some women whose uh benefaction made all the difference for uh some of the more prolific church fathers that we're uh, familiar with um in the earliest uh centuries the the authority of the martyr was uh quite powerful and it it had to negotiate its space within the congregation, uh, also with the bishop, who that office was rising. But there's, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we don't have uh, firm, conclusive evidence that there was a woman with the title of bishop. Nevertheless, the martyrs, because of their testimony, uh, were seen as... I don't know if this is a good way to phrase it or not, but like a, a direct conduit, if you will, uh, that, there, that the believer's prayers could be uh, taken by the, these martyrs uh, and get results. <laughs> uh, and, and so that, that's a, an amazing amount of authority. So we see in some of the church fathers' writings how they were very cognizant of how you know, they, they, it was a team, the, the leading of the church was a team effort, if you will, between the, the murder's reputation and, uh, the bishop and, and that responsibility on uh, handling the, the Eucharist and baptism. 
Yeah, a good example of that would be Thecla. Uh, we talked about her early on, and she ends up, she's sort of this interesting proto-martyr character. We have these different endings for her life. Um, but she becomes... Uh, I mean, we were, we were, we played around with different analogies. <laughs> what Thecla would, would be like today? I was like, she'd be on every lunchbox, you know, like, <laughs> and she t-shirts and mugs. I mean, we know because there were literally vases and votive candles yeah. and all sorts of like the, the ancient version of you know what you'd have with like uh, you know Spider Man on everything, whatnot. Um, but what was incredible about her is how the longevity of her influence. Uh, where this, she's, I mean, she's almost certainly fictional, maybe combination of various women or something like that. Um, But we have Gregory of Nazianzus in the fourth century, after he stops being, um, you know, kind of resigns as the Bishop of Constantinople after the Council of Constantinople in 381, he goes out to Thecla's shrine <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and goes there. Uh, and, and it was a mass, it was a major destination place for, uh, for bishops and people in the church to go and, and to seek God and have respite and all under sort of her authority. Like that, a shrine wasn't just like a place that you went for, uh, like it was, these places were like sort of where heaven meets earth in a lot of different ways, which is why there's all sorts of conversations about, and this gets into a area of like going down to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Do you need to go down to Jerusalem to walk in the feet of Jesus? Or, you know, Gregory of Nyssa will famously say, no, you can just go to your (laughs) local Meyer shrine and and have the same experience. Um, but we have we have examples of that, and then we have people like Macrina, who um, she after her father dies and her mother, she sort of be, Gregory says she becomes mother and father and sister mm-hmm. and teacher, and she, he goes through this whole list. Well, she just she is one of the first ones to really establish a ascetic community that Basil would join a little bit later, and will eventually write his rule that becomes really central for um, different you know, people being ascetics, like not just going out to the desert, but being part of the community of the church in, in the different locales that were part of cities and, and towns. And uh, Macarena was, we call her an ascetic entrepreneur. Hmm. And she, a lot of these women were uh, considered to be, people who not only financed, but also who were um, colleagues, I think would be a really a, a, a fitting term for a lot of them, where these letters back and forth with Jerome, I mean, it wasn't just like, he wasn't doing this. I mean, he Jerome always has like 12 reasons for doing everything, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but one of those reasons, I mean, he, these reasons was, yes, he needed this, the money that these women afforded him and the influence that these women gave him and the entrance that these women gave him into powerful circles, but also because they did a lot of work, a lot of theological and biblical work for him that they were sharing back and forth, asking practical questions. What do I, how does my daughter understand what it means to be a virgin? Cause there was this whole office of virgin in the church that, it was being constantly renegotiated. The East is slightly different than the West. The West got really sort of obsessed about trying to figure out what that meant. And uh, the same negotiation that was happening between martyr and bishop earlier would happen later with virgin and bishop. Hmm. And the transition there, uh, because virgins were associated with, with, with Christological imitation which the bishop, of course, would be responsible for with the Eucharist. (laughs) So the the overlap there was significant. Yeah. Do you think, is that that transition from martyr versus bishop to virgin versus bishop, is that kind of moving along with kind of the lessening of persecution against Christians and the increase of their prominence within Greco-Roman society? Yeah, that that the transition from from martyr to ascetic is largely because of the ceasing of persecution, mm-hmm. where virgins were considered sort of uh, living martyrs. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I would also just say that um, I, I wouldn't want to necessarily paint a picture that the martyr 
and the bishop were in necessarily in competition. Um, probably there was a lot of synergy, um, and I'm not sure that the average person in the pew, so to speak, I don't think they had pews then, um, <laughs> would have uh, would have necessarily seen it that way. They might have just recognized that there are different aspects of their faith that are handled by different. Uh, different people. So that I'm sure there were, there were contests, no question, but I, I wouldn't want it to be seen as, you know, kind of a constant tug of war. Mm, yeah. Would you think that's fair, Amy? Yeah, I, I, I do. Yeah. So the, the relationships that these women are building within their local, um, gathering of Christians uh, and and in the convents that they're creating and establishing. You talk about uh, the idea of fictive kinship and how that sometimes creates some contention in their biological kinship. Can you talk about that idea? What is fictive, fictive kinship and, and how that also... I mean, I think this ties back into uh, playing, uh, conforming to or pushing against the social norms so to kind of bring us back to that, can you all talk a little bit about that? Well, the uh, even the language of fictive kinship, uh, we have that even in talking about Paul's letters, mm -hmm. where he, he'll use the language of brother and sister uh, to describe the, the body of Christ, the family of God, that sort of thing. Um, it's quite remarkable in the martyrdom of Perpetua, how she uh, interacts with her father. Um, they have a couple of quite dramatic scenes where she maintains, I am a Christian, uh, over against his insistence that she not abandon her um, her heritage, which includes uh, paganism. And it, uh, it, it just wasn't done. I, I honestly just don't know how to say it uh, beyond that. It just simply wasn't done for a daughter to abandon her family that way. You talked earlier about honor and shame. Well, this uh, action by Perpetua certainly brought shame on her family from the wider culture's eyes. Um, and yet in the story, she also um, has a vision of her younger brother who died uh, most likely from uh, cancer. And he is in torment in, in her uh, vision. And after much prayer uh, about, uh, about his situation, she uh, receives another vision where he is at peace. And so I think she might argue, I think that, pardon me, the text argues that she actually is a really good family member. She's watching out for her family in ways that matter. But it, it is quite remarkable that the, um, that the, um, uh, this tension within the biological family could be just really strong at, at this time. Um, uh, Amy mentioned Thecla a moment ago. Uh, Thecla, after she hears Paul preach, this is at the beginning of the story, um, she then uh, decides not to, or she decides to break off her engagement. And her mother is absolutely furious with her for doing so. And so uh, her mother turns her into the governor of the town. And then the governor of the, uh, of the town, um, you know, wants to put her to death. Mm. And of course, she is miraculously saved one of many times when she is miraculously saved. But I just highlight that in the case of both Perpetua and of Thecla, the martyrdom scene is, uh, is as its backdrop, is this contest between the biological family and the family of God. And I think that um, that idea, as the church moves from its uh, pagan roots, the Gentiles um, who become converts, as they move away from their pagan roots, uh, you continue to have this, uh, this tension uh, within the biological family versus the family of God. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hughes, do you have anything to add to that? I know you have to run and grab your power cord. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, I think there's uh, a significant, uh, I'm, I think it's, it's true of just Christianity in general during this time of 
of renegotiating a lot of what the family meant and kind of who was a part of one's family, what one's role was in the family. I already mentioned Macarena being uh, like his, her brother, very specifically identifying her with, it was interesting that, you know, him as a, uh, as a land owning upper class aristocratic guy um, is identifying Macarena as the Peter Familius, <laughs> hmm. yeah. uh, as the father, which I mean, this is this is core to Roman society and identity. Like, you don't call a woman that. Um, but he's he's assigning these particular this, these roles to her that wouldn't have been sort of generally how family was understood. Um, and I think you see that in a lot of different in a, in a lot of different ways, um, different relationships with how families kind of were, were structured and orchestrated and what, um, and, and with these ascetics, like I mentioned, the millennia's leaving sort of redefining what it meant to have a marriage relationship, mm. uh, that the idea of being married and not in, and in Roman society, not having children and like choosing not to do that was a different kind of thing. And to add on to that, they were understood millennium pinius were I, I i can't even think like they would have put bill and melinda gates like way down on the list like they were the kind of wealthy we can't even conceptualize mm. <laughs> right now and they were wealthy and and roman citizens during a time when rome was under direct threat um from the northern uh gothic tribes and such and so coming when they decided to like relinquish their wealth, mm. <laughs> the, the empress actually sat them down and went, you sure about that? Like, I mean, they were, <laughs> they were literally like throwing the economy into a fit mm. because of all of the uh, lands that they owned, all of the slaves that they owned. all And so there was a, a restructuring even of how, the family functioned in the Roman empire that was going on mm-hmm. that Christians were doing and, and sometimes driving people crazy with their redefinitions of it. <laughs> and I think that highlights, you know, as I, as I pondered the, the decisions that were made also by uh, Thecla, who was wealthy and gave that all up perpetua, who also was from a wealthy mildly wealthy, not, not as wealthy as uh, some of the later women we look at. Um, but to think about, well, what, how, how do I make my decisions today? Uh, certainly as a wealthy person relative to the rest of the world, you know, as, as an American with a, an education, um, and what would have motivated them? Um, I think for the, the, uh, martyrs, um, especially there, there was this vision of the resurrection of the body and a desire to know Christ in a, in a really deep way and imitate him and, and then try to make all of their decisions based on what would be true in the life to come in the new heavens and new earth. Um, that, um, for all of the things that don't, easily make sense to me some of the decisions that they make yet that core value that insistence on um thinking uh seriously and 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 um deeply about the life to come and having that at the center of their decision making was um yeah it was an inspiration um Mm -hmm. as as i was looking at their lives Hmm. well thinking along those lines how would y'all say that we can maybe in 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 our current contemporary context of still working through um women's rights and women's role in in the church today that's still being a a, a struggle how can we today take these stories of these women from the ancient world and and learn from it in this context going through the struggles and questions that are in the church today i think part of the i think two things um 
the very fact that we tell these stories at all, I think is important. I, I, we've heard a lot from people who are like, I had no idea, like never heard these stories before. Um, and some of that has to do with, especially some, um, ends of Protestant, you know, Christianity sort of skip over a whole lot of history in between. That would be my <laughs> tradition. <laughs> I grew up between Southern Baptist. And, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Between the Bible and, you know, I was, Pentecostal, right? So the church started in, you know, <laughs> so uh, between that and your denomination. And so some of it is just non-familiarity. And so some of the assumption we've heard from people is this idea that women didn't participate in the development of Christianity. And mm. we've seen this even borne out in, in scholarship texts. Like uh, I've often you know, noted the fact that you walk into most academic offices or pastor's offices and you just look at the bookshelves and you look at the shelves that have like theology on them. And you have, you see the giant systematic theology books and you see, you know, Karl Barth or Calvin or, you know, wh whoever is up there. Right. And then they might have another shelf that is like women's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the women's stuff might be just as theological as the stuff over there, but there's sort of this, this categorical difference there. Mm. And so the assumption is that you can tell the story of Christian development without women mm. and you can't, yeah. <laughs> you actually can't. I mean, that's part of the point of our book is that without these women, Christianity would not exist as it does. Mm. Um, those councils wouldn't have happened in the same way as they do. Um, the, putting together the canon, the understanding of the, like Christological imitation of the martyrs, a lot of our theological understandings of a lot of things um, rely upon these women and a lot of others who go unnamed in these texts. And so some of it is just realizing that your story actually includes a whole lot more people than you thought they did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I forgot my second point, so you can go to Lynn. And <laughs> okay. Wait, what was the question again? <laughs> I got I got going, so now, <laughs> now I remember. Uh, how how we can learn from from the women of the ancient world in today's apply it to today. Yeah, thank you. Um, no, I was just teasing. Um, the uh, the yeah, I think um, history in and of itself is valuable because it excites our imagination when we think, wow, they they actually did that back then. Of of or, um, or, or it, it tells us, it just helps us understand ourselves when we see how other humans have lived in the, in the past. I think that's why, uh, you know, even reading the book of Acts, um, is, is so helpful alongside reading Paul's letters, right? Because it, it gives a context and a story format a narrative to what was happening. I think one of the values of seeing these women's lives is it reminds us that the men had lives too. <laughs> you know, they weren't just, you know, like, I don't know, heads on a, on a stick that, that, uh, were, were in, you know, councils creating creeds. Mm -hmm. They also visited shrines, as Amy mentioned earlier, and, and they, um, they participated in Eucharist and, and they followed the liturgical calendar of, of the church. And I think what sometimes happens is that we imagine that anything is, that is sort of emotional or liturgical or uh, active in that sense is what women did. And men thought about stuff. And, <laughs> and, and in fact, that both were doing both, <laughs> both men and women, very active in the daily life of the church with and so um, the, the interaction between men and women and men modeling their behavior on women. We know, for example, that some men, because they tell us, uh, looked at Thecla as an example to follow. Mm. Uh, I, I would love for that to also be the case today, uh, mm -hmm. where we think about being a disciple of Christ first and then look around us to see who's doing that well. And then shaping our our lives around around those examples. I think that uh, certainly with the martyrs, uh, there was no pink martyr and blue martyr. There was just martyr, and and their testimony was efficacious for the congregation. Um, and and so I think uh, you know we have the 
Me Too movement now that uh, promotes a woman's voice. And and that I think that's, in, in terms of Christian history, um, that's consistent with how the church would listen to the martyr's voice. Um, what I think would be nice as well today is for uh, the church, including men, to listen. They would also, in that action, be modeling what the what the church did as they read and celebrated the martyrs' lives year after year in the church's calendar. Um, and so that would be something we could learn today from our ancient um, mothers and fathers in the church. Thank you so yeah. much. Did you have more to add? Oh, I, I was just going to say that I, it matters whose stories we tell and uh, and thinking about our own context about like like Lynn mentioned about who who around us do we look at and I think that there are we tend to listen to stories of people that are like us representation matters right mm -hmm. so um, we and and in our culture there we're used to seeing you know white super white male superheroes you know and so then but then you see different representations on a, on a, you know, on a screen or in a book. And, and all of a sudden that story means something different to you. Mm. Uh, especially if you, and not just for the person that is represented there and that minority voice, um, but also to the people who otherwise are well represented, like all of a sudden their world starts to expand in a different kind of way. They hear things structured differently than they've used to. And I think a lot about how the church has been, has, has listened to guys for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, I just would really love to see what would happen if we have, if we just sort of allow the influx of, of voices of not just women, but of um, different races, different backgrounds, socioeconomic classes, and just seeing how the richness and the expansiveness of the Christian experience would mm -hmm. be like. Yeah. And and hearing from different different experiences allows for us to sort of see the broad strokes of what it of what the church can be. And I think there's a there's a real sort of eschatological hope piece to that, where you know the all every tribe, every tongue, every nation, you know, sort of thing. And and it and, and it doesn't just you know sort of make it so those other people can participate too, but like it's it's also like vital and efficacious for people who don't realize that they need that in mm. their lives as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's so much more that I wish we could talk about. Uh, one one of the chapters that I particularly appreciated was the the one on uh, art in the especially in the catacombs. I thought that was just so unique that I, I just expected, you know, to see a chapter on this woman, a chapter on this woman, but just to see these new ways of of looking at a uh, different ways in which women were appreciated in, in that in that society. I, it was a wonderful book. Thank you both for writing it. I have one two-part last question for each of you before we go, which is, uh, who is your favorite mother to study um, and why? And then possibly connected with that is, who would you suggest for new students to this topic for an absolute beginner, where would you send them to begin reading on Christian women in the patristic world? Specifically an ancient text that they would start with? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, we'll go with okay. that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> gonna say because they can read our book that was <laughs> oh, I, would, I am going to yeah, suggest that <laughs> it is a wonderful place to start yes I hope and and although I mean I'm saying that somewhat tongue-in-cheek I'm also kind of serious because um it I would love for people to read Thecla love for them to read the martyrdom perpetua and felicitas you can do that just google their names and the mm -hmm. the stories you can pull right off uh the internet but there are going to be some weird parts to it. It's going to feel a little odd. And so mm -hmm. having our book that might kind of be able to help you unpack some mm -hmm. of the things I think could be could be helpful. Boy, I, uh, you know, they're they're all my sisters in this book. I can't pick a favorite one that that wouldn't be fair. Uh, but there are aspects of of stories that I uh, especially like. And, and I guess I would say didn't have a chance to talk about her. Uh, so maybe this will pique uh, your listeners' 
uh, interest and, the, and they'll buy our book and, and get on the web and, and look at the primary sources. And that is Felicitas, who is a slave mm-hmm. woman who is pregnant uh, alongside uh, Perpetua there in prison before they go to be martyred. And uh, she, this is spoiler alert, but she has her baby before she goes into the arena. And as she reflects on what that is like relative to her upcoming martyrdom, it it is a fascinating exploration to think about uh, her own labor and Christ's labor on her behalf, the shedding of blood that brings life, her daughter, into the world, and the shedding of Christ's blood that will bring her into new life. I mean, it's just a fascinating look at what is the uh, the remarkableness of Christ's redemption and the ordinariness of a woman giving birth and how rich the theological reflection is on those two things. So that that's uh, an aspect, I think, of the study of our book that, that really captured my imagination. Um, for me, uh, I have two that were really um, good. And the reason I say two is because one of them would be a little bit hard to get a primary text for. So I'll start with her, um, Eudokia. Uh, I mentioned before that the empresses weren't, uh, hadn't really worked with them very much, but her in particular um, is just really interesting because generally uh, if you're going with the Orthodox frame, you're going to spend time with Pulcheria, who you know, was very influential in the Council of Ephesus and, and, um, and later with the Christological controversies continuing into the fourth council, Chalcedon. And, um, but Eudokia is this figure that Polcaria sets up with her brother. Like they have this whole matchmaking thing. And, but what's interesting about her, I mean, she converts to Christianity when she, um, you know, for her marriage. And so she, her name was Athenaeus before she, um, uh, before she came there. And her father was a, a celebrated Redor, like someone who traveled around, gave speeches. And Eudokia was as well. We actually know that she went and on these imperial tours and we get up and wow crowds with her rhetorical capacities and Antioch and such. And that was just, just really interesting. And she is one of the other women that we have writing from. We have a, um, a, a, a kento from her, a cento, which is a uh, what they would do is, and we have this on the Latin side too with Proba. We didn't work with her in the book very, uh, uh, very little, but where they would take uh, the pa- passages from the um, famous poets and tell the story generally of the, mostly of the New Testament of, well, specifically of Jesus, the gospel. And so what Eudokia did is she took Homer's Odyssey and Iliad and all she used were were bits from the passages from those texts to reconstruct them, to stitch them together. That's what this, this kind of uh, literary work is stitch it together to tell the story of Jesus. And we actually don't have this entire thing in English. And I would, and I partially probably because you'd need a classicist, a biblical scholar, a theologian (laughs) and to even make sense of what she's doing, but it is absolutely like mind boggling and amazing. Um, so for, for me, that was a, just a real delight to work with her, um, uh, on the frame of being able to connect with, um, a text that would be accessible would be these early dialogues of, of Augustine's and people are very familiar with Augustine. So the confessions is an obvious place to start because Monica is a star of that too. But I really enjoy these little dialogues that he does early on the ones that we mentioned in there on, on the on the happy life and on order. They're pretty short and they're, they're like styled like a platonic dialogue or, a, uh, Cic- or Ciceronian dialogue actually. And, um, and they're fun. They're kind of funny too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they go back and forth and Monica just has these real great lines and they're good zingers. <laughs> uh, and, and she just came to life in a different way by reading about her. Cause sometimes she gets cast by sort of in, like if you look like look up Monica on the internet, she's like, oh, holy mother, <laughs> like, and <laughs> which is true, I guess. But this really sort of put her in this place of someone who uh, was someone that her her son enjoyed being around, and they had interesting conversations. And she gets a little bit more realistic when you start reading these texts. So that's what I would recommend. All right, do either of you have anything you want to add before we wrap up? 
Well, just thank you very much for uh, inviting us to talk with you. Yeah, thank you yes, for thank the book. Well, it's been a pleasure, you know, always talking about this. It's always fun to talk about these women and to um, have to have had the opportunity to work with Lynn too. It was an amazing experience. So, yeah, we had a good time.